noon on the first Monday of the month and we're somewhat gobsmacked to, ab- to admit that it's already the spring edition of Book Choice. The months have certainly merged into each other this strange year, but if you're listening, I think we can all agree that our constant has been that we've been able to turn to a reliable book, whether hard copy, ebook, or audio version to broaden our world when it has often seemed rather frustratingly restricted and small. Happily, here in South Africa, we are emerging into warmer weather, fewer rules and regulations, and hopefully better health. As always, the FMR Book Choice team, continuing to bring calm in the chaos, has selected a range of interesting and entertaining releases to share giving a small taste of what's out there in the publishing world. As one of our featured authors this month, Helen Moffat, reminds us, there has been what is called the Great Book Crush, specifically in the UK, where, because of the pandemic backlog, 600 new books were released on the same day, the 3rd of September, including her own, Charlotte. Debut authors and their publishers have had to compete for attention with some heavy hitters, including Jamie Oliver's new cookbook for very limited shelf space. So it's in the spirit of spreading bookish love and awareness that we bring you Book Choice this month. I'm Cindy Moritz, and I look forward to spending the next hour with you. Aptly, we begin with Helen Moffat's Charlotte, reviewed by Vanessa Levenstein. In this sparkling tale of marriage and friendship, Moffat reimagines the character of Charlotte Lucas, picking up her story where Jane Austen's pride and prejudice ends. Melvin Minar not only loved the title of Johannesburg writer and researcher Barbara Adair's new book, Will, The Passenger Delaying Flight, the first word Will is capitalized, but called it a delightful return to literature and modernism. He also reviews one of her earlier works, In Tangier's We Killed the Blue Parrot. Leanne Voisey happily immersed herself in the world of cash-in-transit heists, powerful mooty practitioners, and at least three dead people in Three Bodies by N.R. Brodie. And Beverly Roos-Muller gives us brilliant insight into the power of a few individuals in the course of history as she reviews Seven Votes by Richard Stein. 
John Hanks illuminates the world of a most fascinating and topical creature in Richard Pierce's Pangolins, Scales of Injustice, which he reviewed in ebook format and suggests complimentary viewing of an excellent 45-minute film on pangolins called Eye of the Pangolin, which can be downloaded free on YouTube. Beryl Eichenberger became gloriously lost in Isabel Allender's a Long Petal of the Sea, which spans four generations of a Spanish family displaced first by the Spanish Civil War and then again by the military coup in Chile. Jonathan Musicanth gives voice to amateur birdwatchers in his review of Sassel, Birds of Southern Africa, 5th edition, with a lovely surprise at the end, and we wrap up this month's offering on a note of confidence with a message from author Rutger Bregman, whose latest book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, brings a much-needed message of hope. I'm joined today by Mzukizi Maketa in the studio, and let's get to the reviews then. Vanessa Levenstein, you would be happy to place a copy of Helen Moffat's Charlotte, the reimagined tale of Charlotte Lucas from Pride and Prejudice, alongside your much-loved Jane Austen collection. When it comes to Jane Austen, any adaption, prequel or sequel, feels like tampering with a holy relic. So it was with a curious but guarded anticipation that I slid open the Kindle button and clicked on Charlotte by Helen Moffat. We remember Charlotte from Pride and Prejudice, the plain friend of Elizabeth Bennet, who settles for the discarded Mr. Collins. What happens to Charlotte? That is the question that Helen explores through the pages of this tender and delightful book. We meet Charlotte for the first time at the graveside of her little boy Tom, Her overwhelming grief weeps through the lines and speaks of the most unbearable loss. We are then introduced to Mr. Collins, the father of the dead child, and it is in this introduction that the author shows her depth as a writer. It would have been so easy to leave Mr. Collins in Alston land as a jabbering, annoying man. Instead we see him through the eyes of his wife as a man who has been transformed by both love and grief. Grief, as we know, is complex, and the path to healing is not linear, but one that the Collinses need to navigate, both together and alone. Charlotte's immediate world is Rosings Park, under the patronage of Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and she attends to her duties with a stoic determination and quiet strength. After the loss of Tom, her world unravels, and she forms an unlikely friendship with Lady Catherine's daughter, the seemingly meek and pale Anne, who's an heiress and so doesn't need or seek matrimony. What Anne does desire is freedom, away from the claustrophobic confines of the rosing sitting room. Nothing can replace the vacuum left by loss, but the shattering of Charlotte's world has created a shift where new ideas and relationships can exist. When Charlotte is invited to visit her friend, Elizabeth Bennet, she takes her two small girls but leaves her husband at home. The author is careful to ensure that the narrative shines strongly on her heroine. It's now Charlotte's turn to explore passion and the different meanings of love. Charlotte befriends Jacob Rosenstein, a Jewish musician who's mastered the art of not only performing, but listening. The narrative is sprinkled with delightful observations. I read this sentence and immediately thought of the very plant before the name was mentioned. Crumble this between your fingers and hold it to your nose. The leaf was tough, almost leather, and covered with a down of fine hairs. 
It is a pelagonium from the Cape of Good Hope. It's not only the Cape that gets a mention, but also the Napoleonic walls and the people living on the other side of the social divide. Moffat alludes to the society in which Charlotte lives, but it's never forced, nor is she trying to be a PC Austin. In fact, she isn't trying to be Austin at all. Helen Moffat is merely picking up a tapestry thread and stitching a new portrait. If I owned a hard copy of Charlotte, I would happily place it next to my red, leather-bound box set of Jane Austen. Melvin Minar not only did the title of Barbara Adair's new book, Will, The Passenger Delaying Flight, tickle your fancy, you had some high praise for the book itself, as well as her previous work, In Tangier's We Killed the Blue Parrot. The Johannesburg writer and researcher Barbara Adair's new book is a delightful return, as it were, to literature and modernism, and I use those words with reverence and passion. That means it's a novel for those of us who don't believe writing is simply a contrived rush to the end of a unique or ordinary story, but can be an aesthetic alliance of words, thoughts, and some colorful wish and thinking calculated to a T. The title of the new book nicely published by Modiati Books, will tickle your fancy. It's called Will the Passenger Delaying the Flight dot dot dot, with the first word Will capitalized, followed by an ambivalent comma with three glorious hesitating stops trailing the sentence. As you can imagine, it's a takeoff on a remarkable reading flight. It tells of Volker, a German traveling between Frankfurt and Windhoek, Europe to Africa, and is connecting hours at the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. Well, that's the basic structure of the dense 148-page novel in which vibrant theatrical alternative characters enter and exit his slow passage from arrival in Terminal 1 to departure Terminal 2. Among the walk-ons, there's a murderer, terrorist, pedophile, dwarf, sex worker, and trafficker who all spin together in a weird off-stage connection. Volker is on an existential journey from a lost lover between nowhere towards who knows where. Adair describes in the finest detail his kind of hapless airport experiences in third person, but intercuts this with his stream of consciousness, thought and observation. This in turn sets link with the backstories of those colourful characters, a plot that weaves in and out of sight and awareness like a movie. In fact, despite the wordy weight, there's a cinematic vitality as Adair stresses details. So there are layers of telling, of comments, of observation, of debate, turning the read into a pulsating experience of modernist disruptive text. It jolts and energises the reading experience because Adair keeps it in tight control. The craft of narrative writing is Adair's forte, and there is a seamless virtuosity in the way she switches character perspectives. It just grabs the reader. Because of this, it makes a lot of sense to read a 2004 novel as well. It has an equally eye-catching title. She called it In Tangiers We Killed the Blue Parrot. Suggesting an exotic and erotic otherness, the book is rooted in literature and creative history and unfolds to a melancholic narrative. It fictionalizes the fantastical stay in Morocco during the 1940s by the American composer and author Paul Bowles and his wife Jane, 
also a writer. Both have striking local lovers, of which Paul's beautiful young Velasquezim frames the story from a number of years in the future looking back. A marvellous centre is the trip the two take into the desert which acts as an inspiration and parallel to Bowles' famous book of desired thought, The Sheltering Sky. Adair charges the reckless days and time in Dungeas as a creative crisis for the two artists in search of the respective mojos. But the future will turn out differently for all. It was, as they say, the time of their lives. In Tajir's We Killed the Blue Parrot was nominated for the Sunday Times Fiction Award in 2004. The more, shall we say, experimental will, the passenger delaying the flight, is in a different vein, but startlingly compelling in its literary craftiness. Read both these gems for your pleasure of top-notch fiction with a twist.
so refreshing like summer pitches music of mike lots my late uh colleague here on fine music radio doing give me the simple life sounding amazing on this lovely lovely afternoon in the mother city what do you say cindy Absolutely. And next up, we've got Leanne Voisey, who chose to escape the challenges of lockdown with some very real horror stories in N.R. Brody's Three Bodies. There is nothing more delicious than escaping the miseries of real-life lockdown by immersing oneself in a world of cash-and-transit heists, powerful Muti practitioners, and at least three dead bodies. N.R. Brody's second novel, starring Reshma Patel and Ian Jack, has an abundance of car chases, scary dark passageways, and even a nod to the supernatural. I must start by admitting that this is my first N.R. Brody. Three Bodies is actually the sequel to her debut novel, Knucklebone, and although there are a few references made, you can definitely read her second book without reading the first. The crime thriller genre tends to be adrenaline-driven, Fast-paced, choppy dialogue, machismo, and as my dear old dad used to say, skopskit and donor. Brody, on the other hand, writes cleanly and quite sparingly. She has a measured voice which contrasts effectively with the subject matter. I'm going to steer clear of spoilers by staying away from the storyline. Reshma and Ian are living in Gauteng, and the action takes place in and around Joburg. There's a smattering of Afrikaans and Isikosa, which feels intimate after the European, American and Scandinavian cities and cultural landscapes we are mostly exposed to when reading thrillers. The book has some excellently written scenes which I really enjoyed. Brody walks us through an SAPS house search which is fascinating and her description of a cash and transit heist is exciting because she succeeds in placing her reader on the scene. I love it when a novel gives me a movie to play in my imagination. On the downside, the relationship between Reshma and Ian has very little meat on its bones. One's imagination doesn't have much to work with, which means the reader can't build a rapport with a character. Dialogue between them is kept to a minimum, so although Brody hints at complexities, she doesn't actually deliver. On the other hand, she gives interesting and well-researched insights into Apartheid's lingering legacy and covers diverse thought-provoking topics like feminism in current times and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how it was abused by some very bad people. In fact, evil as an entity that manifests in all sorts of circumstances is one of this book's themes, I'd say. I found this novel mature and measured and I would definitely read another N.R. Brody. Three Bodies is available in hard copy and e-book formats. Beverly Rose Muller, you have called former newspaper editor Richard Stein's new book, Seven Votes, a valuable read. Tell us more about how the voices of a few can affect the course of history. How often has the world's history hung on just a handful of votes? It's quite terrifying to think of what can happen if votes go the wrong way, depending, of course, on which side of the fence you're on. Few except the crazies and the haters would deny that it was essential to fight Adolf Hitler. Not going to war against his Nazis would have meant that South Africa not only would have had an enemy on its borders, then Southwest Africa closely aligned to Germany, but let's be blunt, Hitler was no friend of black people. Yet when Prime Minister Jan Smuts took the vote to go to war, along with the rest of the Commonwealth in 
1939, at the onset of World War II, he was confronted by the great divide between Afrikaners and his own government and those led by Dias Malan and Hendrik Favot, who were not just neutral, but active supporters of the German win, and supported by many who resented, to an extent justifiably, the inferior role Afrikaners had been consigned to after the Boer War. This valuable book by former newspaper editor Richard Stein, author of a number of books on South Africa's leaders, including a biography of Smuts, leads into the knife-edged parliamentary vote early in September 1939 with an hour-by-hour, day-by-day account of the caucusing and shenanigans that led up to that historic vote over World War II, whereby only seven members determined that South Africa would indeed join the fight against this awful enemy. We forget just how touch and go it was. Streets were thronged with anxious citizens, white for the most part, gathered outside Parliament and newspaper houses. Smuts had placed his worldwide reputation as an international statesman on the line, but he was also painfully aware that his enormous efforts after the catastrophic Anglo-Boer War to unite the two white tribes of South Africa into a fusion government was very deeply threatened. He was helped and hindered to some extent by his brilliant young deputy Prime Minister Jan Hendrik Hofmeyer, perhaps the most able man ever to serve in government but who refused to support anything he did not think had a valid ethical or intellectual basis. This uncompromisingly ethical position can be a death knell in politics, and it would cost his party dear in the 1948 election, though he was not wrong. I would have liked perhaps to see a bit more of a discussion on Hofner's refusal to accept the banning of Jewish refugees and other anti-Semitic drives, although that is well laid out in Alan Payson's brilliant biography of Hofmeyer. South Africa did go to war. Hitler was defeated. But the aftermath was a disaster here. Angry Afrikaners on the right used the events to drum up fierce nationalistic sentiment. And given that black South Africans had little or no voice in formal politics, the country in the 1948 general election hung on a knife edge once more. Smuts won the popular vote, but because he had not sufficiently counted the weight given to rural votes, he lost the election. And the result was the tragedy of formalized grand apartheid. Much of seven votes reveals the intricacies of black politics during that period. Some names will be known to us, but many have faded. And Stain highlights the formations of black political organizations so crucial to the future. He also introduces short biographies within his text of such outstanding leaders as Abdurrahman Abdullah, that's the greatest brown leader in the Cape in this era, Professor Z.K. Matthews, Ashley Mdar, father of the author Jake Mdar, Anton Zimbedi, and others perhaps better known to us, such as Mandela Tambo and Albert Latuli, the first South African Nobel laureate. He engages in a bit of what-ism at the end, which I usually dislike, but in this case I think it's fair. Smuts was a giant leader who was fully aware of the pain of black South Africans, but also as a pragmatist knew he would lose if he tried to edge the white population too far too fast. 
What if he had not got those crucial seven votes? What if a Milan-led government had conducted a peace treaty with Germany, which then lost the war? Where would South Africa have been then, alone and unprotected? And what would have happened to the growing aspirations of the black population? I think it's fair to say that a peaceful solution here would have been unlikely. Seldom has a mere seven votes been more crucial. I highly recommend this book. Wonderful voices on Fine Music Radio. That voice was of Beverly Scott Brown with the Glenn Miller Orchestra of South Africa. And that was conducted by Johnny Cooper. I know why.
What do you know, Cindy? What's next on the menu? What I know is that John Hanks has illuminated the world of a most fascinating and topical creature in Richard Pierce's Pangolins, Scales of Injustice, which he reviewed in e-book format and suggests complimentary viewing of an excellent 45-minute film on pangolins called Eye of the Pangolin, which can be downloaded free on YouTube. I wonder how many people listening to this program have ever seen a pangolin in the wild. Almost certainly a very small number, and your chances of ever seeing one are regrettably diminishing every day. To find out why, you must read an excellent book by Richard Pierce entitled Pangolins, Scales of Injustice, a timely production which focuses on the appalling and escalating reality of what is happening to the world's most sought-after traded mammal. So, why are they threatened? Richard Pierce has done a great job in answering this question, setting the scene by introducing the reasons for the fascination of pangolins. To do this, he spent time in the field with dedicated conservation staff, such as Wendy Paneno, who is studying pangolins in the Kalahari, and sharing accounts of how such very rare sightings of a newly born pangolin riding on its mother's back was a never-to-be-forgotten experience. Eight pangolin species occur worldwide, four in Asia and four in Africa. They are the only mammals covered in hard overlapping scales, but because they are shy, solitary and nocturnal, they are rarely sighted. They feed on ants and termites, and they have no teeth but a remarkably long tongue, coated with sticky saliva which laps up these insects. When threatened, they curl up into a ball to protect their head and vulnerable parts, which makes them all too easy to pick up and take away, a defensive mechanism that's contributed to their recent precipitous decline. Pangolins have long been sustainably harvested by local communities for their meat and scales, but today the burgeoning trade in these mammals has reached crisis point and all face extinction if current rates of hunting and trading continue unabated. In 2019 alone, at least 160,000 pangolins were illegally shipped to the Far East and China for pangolin scales for traditional medicine and for human consumption. The illegal trade has almost wiped out all four Asian species of pangolins, and the traders are now turning to the four African species. Pierce has given a vivid and compelling account of a particular pangolin poached in Zimbabwe and brought to South Africa to be traded, and how an agent of the African Pangolin Working Group, assisted by the local police, carried out a sting operation to rescue the animal and capture the traffickers. He then followed the subsequent progress of the rescued pangolin from near death to rehabilitation and released into the wild. He also recognises that as long as there is a demand for pangolins and dealers are prepared to pay high prices, widespread and increasing poverty in Africa is the most powerful persuader that these people who might be approached to get involved in the illegal wildlife trade little choice but to get involved if they and their families are to survive. In his quest to find out at first hand how easy it was to buy pangolins and other wildlife products from Africa on the open market in the Far East, even those species that should be protected by international treaters banning their scale, 
Pierce went to Vietnam and Laos for three weeks to see it for himself. He was horrified by what he witnessed in the wet markets, as they're called, where literally anything and everything from the animal world is for sale for human consumption, dead or alive, with no provision whatsoever for basic hygiene. Here's the important point. Recent studies have identified pangolins as the likely source of the coronavirus infection that has brought the world to its knees. The multi-trillion dollar disaster makes pangolins a key component of undoubtedly the most expensive meals ever eaten. But will this growing awareness be enough to stop the illegal trade? The stop-press part of Pierce's book brings a glimmer of hope. He reported that in June 2020, China's Health Times stated that pangolin scales had been removed for use in traditional Chinese medicine with immediate effect. This was welcomed by Professor Ray Jansen, the driving force behind the African Pangolin Working Group, with the enthusiastic but ironic response when he said, and I quote, This could be a huge step towards ensuring the survival of pangolins, and all it took was a global pandemic, end quote. Just a reminder, the title again is Pangolin Scales of Injustice. It's published in Cape Town by Penguin Random House and Straight Nature. It's available immediately as an e-book at 160 rand. The physical book, which will include stunning photographs, will be published on World Pangolin Day in February 2021. I'm encouraging as many people as possible to get this most readable and topical book, which would stimulate anyone not already captivated by these intriguing mammals to recognize that they deserve our priority attention.
absolutely stunning music without words that was dan hill clarinet player doing the shadow of your smile only on fine music only on fine music radio you can hear such beautiful music it is what 25 to 1 on the clock i hope you are enjoying the music with us cindy what's next what's next let's get back to the books beryl eichenberger became gloriously lost in isabel elendi's a long petal of the sea which spans four generations of a spanish family displaced first by the spanish civil war and then again by the military coup in chile i'm a great fan of chilean poet pablo Neruda. fueled by a visit to chile some 15 years ago and a visit to his quirky ship-like home in Santiago, and also of Isabel Allende. So her new book, A Long Petal of the Sea, immediately captivated me. The title is in a ruder quote, his description of Chile, and throughout the book, chapters open with another appropriate quote. But the significance of these references are strengthened by the part that Neruda played in rescuing refugees from the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War in 1939 after the fascist and Franco's rise to power. Allende is the consummate storyteller, grasping the reader from page one. This is a story of displacement and loss, of sorrow and hope, of a couple trying to find their place in a world in shambles, torn apart by violence, she says in the foreword. And those words set the scene for a story that grips and engrosses, tossing emotions high and low, and finally bring some peace to the protagonists, Victor and Rosa. 1938, and the civil war is raging in Spain. The young, quiet medical auxiliary, Victor Dalmo, is working at the field hospital on the front line close to Barcelona, his hometown. His brother, Gillam, is a born fighter and is at the Madrid front, while Mother Carmen reminds at the family home with Rosa Bruguera, the talented young pianist to whom they had given a home, and was a student of Carmen's husband, Professor Marcel Luis Dalmo. As the civil war gains momentum and defeat is imminent for the Republicans, a fate of murder, incarceration or torture is a certain future for those not supporting fascism and Cranco. The now widowed Karma and Rosa, pregnant with Gillam's child, have to join the massive exodus fleeing their beloved Spain to France. These are the first rich characters that Allende draws with vigor and strength. Under Allende's vivid pen, the cast grows as we meet the upper-class Del Sola family in Santiago, Chile, who are destined to have a major influence on the Dalmo's family life and success. And there are many more such characters, some wonderfully flamboyant, some selfish, many generous while the selfless Dr. Victor remains at his heart. Indelible appearances filled with longing love and passion, not least of which is the appearance of Neruda himself. At the end of 1939, he commissioned the Winnipeg to bring 2,000 refugees to Chile. Living that journey is the Dalmo family, one of the many groups of exiles. The ship docked on the day war broke out in Europe, and the refugees were cast into a new life in Chile. Allende's sweeping narrative spanning four generations follows the lives and loves of Victor and Rosa as they navigate their convenient marriage into a late-blooming love, charts their successes and indomitable sense of survival in a landscape that is ever-changing. 
This is a story of relationships born out of war, of an understanding of what it means to be an exile, of power and the tragedy that is so often coupled with, of seeking success and love, but mostly it is of finding a sense of place in one's heart and body. Allende is herself a political refugee, having escaped Chile under the Pinochet regime to live in the USA. She writes from the heart as she states in the foreword, where do I belong? Where are my roots? Is my heart divided? Or has it just grown bigger? And as Victor says as an old man, the most important events, the one that determine our fate, are almost completely beyond our control. In my case, when I take stock, I see my life marked by the Spanish Civil War in my youth, and later on by the military coup, by the concentration camps, and my exile. I didn't choose any of that. It simply happened to me. This is a powerful novel that has such resonance in today's world. What choices are there when a country is at war and humanity is at its lowest ebb? As refugees flee their beloved countries trying to make new lives in different cultures, how many really find a sense of place? We welcome this month Jonathan Musikanth, who gives voice to amateur bird watchers in his review of Sassol Birds of Southern Africa, 5th edition, with a lovely surprise at the end, a message from the birds themselves, if you like. As a keen but relatively inexperienced birder, I was very excited to receive the latest edition of Sassol Birds of Southern Africa, 5th edition. I have an extensive library of bird guides of Southern Africa, but did not have nor have I ever used a Sassel bird guide. As I was to be reviewing the bird guide, I thought the best way to get a sense of the book was to use it. A great excuse to go on as many birding excursions in a shorter period as possible. At the outset, I must say that Sassel Birds of Southern Africa is a joy to use. It may not be the most informative bird guide I've come across, but this is not necessarily a drawback. What Sassel Birds of Southern Africa does exceptionally well is to strike a balance between content and ease of use. The illustrations for each of the birds are laid out in a simple manner, being clearly demarcated from illustrations of other birds. This may sound obvious, but not all bird guides do this. With some bird guides, one is required to examine a page of illustrations with a degree of focus to determine which illustrations are for which birds. With Sassel birds, the simple and clear layout means that this is no difficulty at all. This alone makes the bird guide a pleasure to use in the field. The bird illustrations are very well chosen and executed. As a field guide, what I'm looking for is an illustration that will most closely resemble what I will see in the field at a distance and often not in ideal viewing conditions. So for my liking, the most useful illustrations will take account of that. I'm therefore not looking for the most detailed illustration of the bird, which frankly will never be of use unless I study the bird in hand. The Sassel Bird Guide illustrations are wonderful in the sense that they are the perfect guide to what a typical birder will see under real conditions. Now to my favourite aspect of this field guide, the bird calls. Yes, the guide has a written description of the bird calls like all bird guides, 
but this bird guide has an ace up its sleeve. Most of the bird entries in the field guide have a barcode. Simply download the free Strake Nature app, open the app, aim your phone at the barcode and the particular bird call is played on your phone. No internet or phone reception is required. The system is very simple to use in the field to identify a bird from its call or at home simply learning a new bird call. My overall impression of the Sassel 5th edition Birds of Southern Africa is of a field guide that does not try and give you everything, but what is sacrificed makes this one of the best field guides to actually use in the field. I'm ending this review with one of the bird calls from Sassel Bird Guide. I'm taking out my phone, turning to page 368 of Sassel Birds of Southern Africa 5th edition. I'm aiming my phone at the Cape Robin chat and
It's music of Burton Lane, and it was performed there by our colleague Louis Howlett. There, doing that old Devil Moon, oh, stunning version. Huh? What do you think, Cindy, of that? Absolutely huh? beautiful, and restores oh, our man. faith in humankind, just like the book I'm going to talk about next. Because now and again, a book comes along that does restore your faith in fellow human beings. And the book I'm currently devouring is just one of those. Written by Dutch historian and author Rutger Bregman, Humankind, A Hopeful History, delivers a new perspective on the last 200,000 years of the human story and a proposition that belief in human kindness and altruism can change the way we think and act, thereby changing the way we live together as a society. A nice note on which to end, I thought. So let's hear from the author himself. My name is Rutger Bregman, and I'm the author of the new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. It's a book about a simple but quite radical idea. What if most people, deep down, are pretty decent? You know, in science, there's been a silent revolution in the past 15 to 20 years. So what we have seen is that scientists from very diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, psychologists, sociologists, you name it, have all moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful view of who we as a species really are. And I think that has revolutionary implications. Because what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. If you assume that most people are selfish, and if you design your institutions around that idea, you know, your schools, your workplaces, your democracies, you know, as we have done in the past 30 to 40 years, then that's what you get. If you assume that people are selfish, that's how they will behave. Now, if we do the opposite, if we assume that most people actually want to cooperate and are relatively friendly and you know, want to help in many cases, then I think we can have a very different kind of society. You know, there is this old theory within Western culture, which scientists call veneer theory. It's the idea that civilization is only a thin veneer, and that as soon as something happens, say a war or a natural disaster, or you know, we shipwreck on a lineup, that we reveal our true selves, that deep down we are just selfish animals, beasts. This, this theory, you know, you'll find it everywhere in Western culture. You find it among the ancient Greeks, uh, with the Christian church fathers who talked about the concept of original sin. You find it with the Enlightenment philosophers. It's at the heart of our modern capitalist economy, you know, the idea that people are just selfish and that we just have to acknowledge that. Um, but again, it just seems to be wrong. Uh, if, we, if you take what happens during a shipwreck, for example, there's an interesting case study. Uh, many of you will have read the novel by William Golding, Lord of the Flies, which is about you know just kids that shipwreck on an island. And these are you know very well educated kids that went to a very nice boarding school in Britain, um, but then they they shipwreck on an island on this island and they reveal you know who they really are, uh, animals, beasts. Even though they have been very well educated, at the end of the novel, three or four of the kids are dead. It's a pretty terrible story. And I remember that I read it when I was 16 years old, and I thought, hmm. You know, maybe this is just a more realistic view of human nature. It was only years later, while researching this book, that I thought, has it ever actually happened? You know, 
did it happen sometime in history that kids did shipwreck on an island? So I started looking for an example and I started researching and researching. And actually, I found one example. Tonga, which is an island group in the uh, Pacific Ocean, um, 1966. What happened is that five, six kids, I should say, six kids shipwrecked on a small island and survived there for 15 months. And you know what? If, if Hollywood would make a film about it, a movie about it, people would say, oh God, this is too naive. This is, this is not what really would happen. Because what did happen, well, they became the best of friends. Uh, some of them are still friends up until this day, you know, more than 50 years later. It's a story about courage. It's a story about loyalty, about comradeship. It's pretty much the opposite of what we've always been told. Now, I know this is just an anecdote, uh, and there is lots more scientific evidence that points in the same direction, actually. Um, but I'm telling this story because it matters. You know, it matters what kind of stories we tell about ourselves, because Again, what we assume in each other is what we get, we get out of each other. And especially right now, in the midst of a pandemic, we need a much more hopeful view of human nature. That's the only way we're going to survive this. You know, it's a very strange time actually to be publishing a book. I've uh, worked on this for five years. Um, and. Yeah, it's, it's for many authors a weird time. You know, do you want to postpone publication or do you want to do it right now? And to be honest, I really have the feeling that, you know, we got to get this story out right now we, because it's very relevant to the time we live in. Um, we need hope. We need a more optimistic view of human nature. And uh, I think the good news is, is that we're already seeing a lot of it right now. Um, Sure, there were some uh, news reports about people hoarding stuff and, you know, panic buying. But the vast majority of behavior during times of crisis is actually pro-socials, people helping each other, an explosion of altruism and cooperation. And we need much more of that in the future. So my book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. I hope you'll like it. Thanks for listening. Fine Music Radio members, your membership and donations have kept us going. We appreciate it, but we can't stop now. If you're not yet a member and have enjoyed the show, do consider joining for just 320 rand a year, less than a rand a day. FMR receives no funding or government grants, and FMR membership fees and donations will greatly help us stay on the air and remain sustainable. Members receive our Opus e-magazine, which includes a newsletter and program guide, and your name also goes into a monthly lucky draw for fun prizes. And that's it for the month of September. Thanks to Mzukizi Maketa for putting this program together and Rick Everett for his ever-joyful choice of music. Next up is Matinee with Dave Kruger. From me, Cindy Moritz, stay well, stay safe, and we'll play out with Love Changes Everything, sung by Gay Corsten. Love, love changes everything. Hands and faces, earth and sky. Love, 
Love changes everything How you live and how you die Love can make the summer fly Oh, well, nights seem like a lifetime Yes, love, love changes everything Now I tremble at your name Nothing in the world Will ever be The same Love Love changes everything Days are longer Words mean more Love Love changes everything Pain is deeper than before Love will turn your world around And that love will last forever Yes, love, love changes everything Brings you glory Brings you shame.